This episode, we continue talking about the idea of equity and how Americans' focus on equality of outcome is affecting us in terms of economic policies and race relations. My name is Jacqueline, and I'm just an American. Last week, I started talking about the concept of equity in our current culture. People seem to be moving away from the ideas of equality of opportunity and moving towards the goal of equity, or fairness, when it comes to outcomes. We are working under this false assumption that anywhere there is an inequality in the outcome or situational circumstances of people, some injustice or discrimination must have taken place. If that is the basis one is working from, then it seems the direction we need to go in is to correct those injustices and eliminate those discriminations. We need to do this until all of the outcomes are the same, which is the only proof that there is truly equality of opportunity. This is a completely flawed and unrealistic belief, and it is the driving force behind so many of the dangerous directions our country is moving in. When we focus on equality of outcome, what we are seeking is uniformity, sameness, but people are not all the same. We all have different abilities, talents, backgrounds, interests, and desires. And yes, we all start in different places. Therefore, the only true way to achieve uniformity among the population is to eliminate personal freedoms. There is really no other way. Last week, I talked about how this ideology is affecting us in terms of gender roles. Today, I wanna talk about how it is affecting us in two areas that I believe are interconnected, economics and race relations. The United States has always been a free market and capitalistic society. That means that the means of production are owned by individual people. The government only runs areas of our society that really cannot be run by private business, things like the military or police. In fact, in the beginning, the only things that the government really did focus on was in terms of national security. But even in that area, the people themselves were given a role, armed citizens to help ward off attacks or danger. Over time, the government slowly started taking over more areas. The government became in charge of infrastructure, building roads and railways as it sought to connect vast expanses of land and communities throughout the states and country. The government became in charge of education when the people decided that they wanted education to be available to all, not just those who could afford it. This driving force behind government-controlled education is actually the driving force behind government-controlled everything, the idea that all people should have access to things, regardless of their wealth or socioeconomic level. Over time, the government has taken over more aspects of our lives with the promise that if they are in control, then more people will have access to these services. And over time, the list of services people feel they are entitled to only seems to grow. But in the United States, this role of government, at least in terms of owning the means of production, is still pretty limited. Others of our basic needs, such as housing, food, clothing, private transportation, and technology are still mostly owned by private companies. Even our utilities, though heavily regulated, are ultimately owned by private entities. But more and more, we hear talk and promotion of socialism in the United States. More and more, we hear that all of the basic necessities, and some of people's wants as well, should be controlled by the government so that everyone can have access to them equally. Socialism as an economic system is defined as one in which the means of production are owned by the government. So many people, especially young people, do not actually understand what the real definition of socialism is, and they misuse the term all the time. But what socialism really means is that the government owns everything, 
They own and control every aspect and corner of our lives. And as such, they have the power to distribute the resources and services more equally, more equitably, some would say. To many, this sounds wonderful. Everyone works and gives all their money to the government only to have all their needs provided for. It doesn't matter if you're a doctor or a grocery store clerk, a scientist, or a worker at McDonald's. Your needs will be provided for equally. It sounds like a utopian paradise. Except that the reality is completely different from the pie-in-the-sky promises socialism seeks to provide. At the beginning of the 20th century, when the ideas of socialism first began to emerge in the world, I could almost forgive people for wanting to give it a try. After all, there was so much poverty and suffering, especially in the years following World War I, and something had to be done to make things better. It was a new idea, a new path that could be tried to see if things would be better. But now, on the other end of the Marxist, communist, socialist experiments, we do not have the excuse of newness of the philosophy to fall back on. Everyone who says that real socialism has not been tried is either ignorant or lying. It has been tried, and it has failed miserably, Everywhere, every time. And not only has it failed miserably, but by some estimates, it caused in the 20th century the murders of somewhere around 100 million people. Now, the intricacies and discussion about socialism could fill many hours and days of discussion, which I obviously don't have right here right now. But some of the basic reasons why this philosophy always fails are at the heart of what we are talking about today. Uniformity of outcome is not a reasonable or realistic goal. First of all, Socialism works under the assumption that human beings are willing to accept equal amounts of compensation no matter what job they do. A surgeon who works 16-hour days, whose job pressure includes life and death circumstances, is perfectly fine making the same amount of money as the fast food worker whose biggest stress is dealing with an irate customer. A police officer who puts his life on the line every time he goes to work is cool with receiving the same compensation as someone whose job it is to restock the shelves in Target. It also assumes that people are going to work hard and give it their all, even though there is really no incentive structure to do so. Whether you work really hard or not hard at all, the result is exactly the same. All of this goes against human nature. Humans are incentive and consequence-based. That is just the reality of how we are built. People work hard when they are going to see the results of their work, going to be able to enjoy the fruits of their labor. But when the result is the same whether you kill yourself or slack off, then most people are going to slack off. Those who promote socialism say that all we need to do is appeal to people's better natures, encourage people to work hard for the sake of community. And while most decent people do want to help their communities and do right by their neighbor, it is a rare person who is willing to work their butts off to support a neighbor who lounges in their pool drinking lemonade all day. We must accept the realities of human nature, not live in some dream world where humans act how we think they ought to. It really doesn't matter if you believe that people are bad or selfish for wanting to see the fruits of their own labor. Your wish doesn't change the reality of who and how people are. If someone is going to be lazy or selfish because they will be paid for doing so just the same as if they worked really hard, then no amount of convincing or appealing to their better natures is going to change them. And we all know this. So what happens when simply appealing to people's good nature doesn't work? What happens when people stop working or working hard or creating or inventing new things because there is no incentive for doing so? Well, the government must turn to force. There is simply no other way. Just living through the COVID pandemic is perfect proof of this. The government, if they had their way, would have everyone stay at home in their houses at all times unless you are going to the grocery store, going to work in a job that can't be done from home, or going out for medical reasons. They have been commanding we live like that for almost a year now. 
appealing to the public's better natures. And yet, I don't know a single person who has actually done that. I don't know a single person who hasn't seen any family or friends outside of their household at one point or another. They appealed to people to wear masks in public, and many people simply didn't do so. So what did they do? They made it mandatory, punishable by fines. And a simple cursory glance through social media comments will show us that there are plenty of our fellow citizens who are perfectly comfortable with the government using force to make people comply. Calls for fines and even imprisonment of people who host gatherings in their homes, go for a run without a mask, or open their businesses are quite commonplace in those comment sections. People, for the most part, even stood behind authorities in Idaho who arrested a woman for daring to take her kids to the park. The willingness of people to be glad about the government using force to make others do what they think they should is truly a frightening thing to see. But when we continue down that road, when we keep pushing and pushing for the government to take over more and more so that they can ensure we are doing what we ought to, it very quickly turns into fascism and totalitarianism. Because human nature dictates that people want to have some level of freedom over their lives. We may all have varying degrees of our need for freedom. Our idea of the perfect balance between government protection and individual liberties varies greatly among different people, as we have clearly seen in the pandemic situation. But there is still a drive and desire in most human hearts to have some level of agency over our lives and want to enjoy the benefits of the level of work we put into life. This is why socialism nearly always turns into communism. This is why socialism and communism are so deadly. Because for many regimes throughout history, when the fines and the imprisonment and the social shaming and bullying of those who do not comply don't work to stifle and bend them, then they simply must be eliminated. Certain public figures today, like Bernie Sanders, like to say, democratic socialism, implying that as long as socialism is achieved through a democratic process, that it is different than other kinds of socialism, that somehow it is not oppressive. This is completely untrue. Majority votes do not erase human nature. Majority votes do not make oppression less oppressive. Most of the human rights atrocities that we have seen in history come from the majority deciding that it is fine to abuse and enslave the minority. It doesn't make it right. The reason why socialism has gained in popularity in recent years is because of our flawed desire to focus on equality of outcome. If someone can afford to live in a mansion and someone else can barely afford to pay rent on their one-bedroom apartment, they believe something profoundly wrong and immoral is taking place. They refuse to look at any other relevant factors that might lead to the discrepancy. Things like how hard someone works, whether or not they made good choices throughout their lives, or even simply what stage of life they are in. One thing about my generation that always struck me was how impatient we are to have all the material things we think we deserve. We want a house, a nice house with all the modern updates. We want to drive nice fancy cars and wear designer clothes and get our nails done every week. We want those things because we see our parents having those things, but we never stop to consider that they have worked for decades to get to that point. They started at the beginning, just like everyone has to. The often vilified business owners who have achieved success and have made it financially nearly always made tremendous sacrifices and took risks with their money and their time and their hard work to build the businesses that they now have, the businesses that often support many other families. They have created something, built something that has benefited society and created jobs. And if they take a bigger piece of the pie in the end than their employees, they are vilified by the likes of Bernie Sanders, a man who has never built or created anything in his entire life. The man who has spent his entire life supported by taxpayer dollars, who constantly advocates for the government to take more taxpayer dollars. Shocker there. 
Our culture has decided that if the owner of a company makes more money than any of the employees who occupy the jobs he or she created, some massive injustice is taking place. But that is simply not the case. One interesting thing about having this conversation is that those who promote socialism will often accuse anyone who doesn't of being greedy and selfish, of not caring about poor people, of not wanting to help those who are less fortunate. That is simply not true. That is just one of those lazy ad hominem attacks made by people who can't defend socialism on the merits because it doesn't actually have merits. People who believe in the free market do care about helping those who are less fortunate. Capitalism has created a better quality of life and lifted way more people out of poverty than socialism ever has. Those who believe in socialism believe the only way to help people is to have the government take care of them and their needs. Those who believe in capitalism believe in helping people in two different ways. The first way is to encourage and build people up to be able to work hard and provide a great life for themselves. This is beneficial in absolutely every way. It helps our communities to have more goods and services for people to benefit from. It helps our society by having people invent, discover, and create new things. And it gives people a purpose and a feeling of self-worth, which is something all human beings desire to have, to have fulfilling lives. The second way that people who believe in capitalism want to help those who are less fortunate is through private charity. It is one of the greatest lies told that if one doesn't believe in government handouts, that means one believes in doing nothing to help the poor. In fact, studies show that conservatives and religious people donate more to charities than liberals and secular people in both time and money, and it's not really close. Private charity is a much better way to help those in need for a few reasons. For one thing, people who are receiving charity are far more likely to work hard to get off the charity as soon as possible, where people who are on government assistance will try to stay on it as long as possible. For another, charities can be far more efficient since everything involving the government ends up with massive amounts of expensive bureaucracy. And also, charity isn't stealing. Government redistribution is. It's so funny that the same people who say that capitalists only care about wealth and greed are the ones who are actually the greedy ones. They are the ones who think that they are entitled to the money that someone else has earned. They are the ones who want to take that money for themselves by using force, by using the strong arm of the government. When people are encouraged to give to charity, it is at the end of the day their choice to give, which means they are not going to be resentful about it. And I do believe those with means should give to those without. We should give plentifully and joyfully. But just because the money you are taking from the wealthy for your own benefit gets filtered through the government doesn't mean that you aren't forcefully taking something you didn't earn. That is stealing. When I was 25, I had a job in a sales office in a hotel. My position was the second lowest in the office as I was just out of college a couple of years and still fairly at the beginning of my career. I was newly married at the time and my husband and I were definitely living paycheck to paycheck. In my same office, there was a lady who held one of the managerial sales positions. She was around 50 years old and had 30 years of experience in the field. She made more money than I did, but also her husband was an attorney. He had his own law practice, and needless to say, as a couple, they did very well. They took luxury vacations multiple times a year. Uh, she bought her husband a Porsche for his birthday, and she was always wearing the best designer clothes. I remember even back then, even when I was not in the best financial situation, Thinking to myself when the subject of socialism would be discussed, why would I be entitled to this woman's money? I mean, really, why should I get to take money away from this lady just because her and her husband had a lot and me and my husband didn't have much? That is what socialism demands. It demands that those who don't have get to simply take from those who have. If I drew a gun on her every month and demanded she give me $500, that would be considered wrong and evil. But that is exactly what we are doing when we demand that some people give money to the government for them to redistribute. 
It just makes us feel better about doing it when it goes through the government. Now, all of this is simply unjustifiable, and progressives know that. This is why when we have this conversation, they actually circle back to equality of opportunity. They argue that the reason why some people are rich and some are poor is because we actually don't have equality of opportunity in America. And because we don't have that, we must guarantee equality of outcome by other means. So let's dive into that argument a little bit. I absolutely concede that we do not have perfect equality of opportunity in America. And the reason that we do not have perfect equality of opportunity is because that is something that is impossible to have. Secular human beings have this flawed tendency to think that if we just get the right people in power, if we just get the right policies passed, we can create that utopia. But that is simply not the case. There will always be inequality of opportunity to a certain extent. There will always be the kids born to rich families who will have more opportunity than those born in poverty. There will always be people who have greater intellectual capacity, who will have a better time in school than others. And yes, the histories of racial and discriminatory practices will have ramifications for generations. Of course, if one group of people for entire generations are held as slaves, their descendants will be impacted by that. When slavery was outlawed, all of the people who were set free were set free with nothing. They weren't given any money or compensation or land or anything. They had to start from scratch. You know who else had to start from scratch? Many of the people who have immigrated to the United States. Most of my ancestors came through Ellis Island from Italy. Not one of them was wealthy. And discrimination against Italians in those days was actually a pretty real thing. Now, I fully understand that black Americans are dealing with a history of racism in America. Between slavery and Jim Crow, as well as everyday racism and education and jobs, there is a lot there to unpack. But just because racism exists and our nation has a history of it doesn't mean that all discrepancies between the races are due to discrimination. It is a very controversial thing to say, but the truth is that the differences in incarceration rates among races has a lot to do with the fact that black males commit crimes at a higher rate than other demographic groups. Does that mean that all black males are criminals? Of course not. Is stating this fact racist? No, it isn't. Single motherhood, one of the leading indicators of poverty in America, is very high in the black community. But we aren't allowed to talk about any of these things, because if we do, we are called racist. And yet, if we truly want to help black Americans succeed, we should be talking about these things. Because the only way to solve a problem is to first identify it. No matter how difficult or uncomfortable it makes us to do so, if we cannot correctly identify a problem, it will never, ever be solved. That is not to say that there are not challenges Black Americans face that are unique. But I do think it is safe to say, and I think that most radical progressives would even agree, that the racial challenges that are faced are directly connected to economics. It is no coincidence that some of the main figures of the BLM movement have openly admitted that they are Marxists. BLM is a Marxist organization whose open and avowed goals include destroying the nuclear family, which always leads to a heavy reliance on the government, and a redistribution of wealth in the form of reparations. People start in different places, and there is nothing we can do to erase that. But the United States of America has come pretty darn close. The opportunities that our nation provides for anyone who is willing to work hard and make good choices is unprecedented. And for anyone who had the privilege to grow up here who scoffs at that notion, I urge you to reflect on the fact that millions of people around the world have the desire to immigrate to the United States. It is the number one desired destination for all people seeking to move, and it isn't close. And it's not just white people who want to come here, but people of every color and ethnicity. Just because perfection in this world is not attainable doesn't mean that we shouldn't constantly strive for it. We should. We should always be working to make sure that we are creating a nation where everyone has the opportunity to make a successful life for themselves. But the focus must be on creating the opportunity, not creating the outcome. One example of something we can do to create more equality of opportunity is to focus on bettering our public school system. 
The public school system is pretty much a disaster. And while that is a topic for another day, the poor quality of schools in the inner cities and poor neighborhoods is a travesty. The school system is set up so that the newest and least experienced and, frankly, the lowest rated teachers are placed in the worst schools, while those with seniority and tenure get the posh, comfy upper class schools. The school system is not adequately funded, which means that they often rely on parental donations. That means that schools in the upper class neighborhoods will always have the resources they need, while schools in the poorer neighborhoods will do without. Anyone who says that government-run organizations are sufficient is lying to you, and the public school system is proof of that. But ironically, it is the very progressives who scream about the importance of equity who are also supporting policies that keep these poor and minority students down. Democrats are the ones who are against school choice, which would give lower class families access to better opportunities for their kids. And they are against school choice because the teachers and unions are the biggest donors and they don't want the competition. The Democratic politicians in America are completely owned by the teachers unions, as we can clearly see in the current battle over reopening schools. Instead of the public schools feeling the need to improve and work harder and provide better for their students, they simply want to eliminate all competition and force the public to continue having to keep their kids in failing schools. As I mentioned, one of the greatest indicators of whether or not a family will live in poverty is single motherhood. But talking about that, encouraging people to not be promiscuous so that they don't have unplanned pregnancies, is considered judgmental, old-fashioned, slut-shaming, and discriminatory. Again, the BLM organization has openly said that they want to dismantle the nuclear family, which literally equates to more single motherhood. We know that working hard and taking responsibility for oneself is the best recipe for having a successful life. Every study and every metric of measurement on the topic proves that. But we are constantly told that talking about such measures is taboo, that we simply cannot expect people to do that, to take personal responsibility, because there are many things that might have happened to them outside their control. And therefore, they are victims, and therefore, they don't need to be responsible. All of the people who make the argument that we need to focus on equity of outcome because of the failures of equality of opportunity are actively promoting and advocating for policies that are standing in the way of equality of opportunity. Some might be following that path due to a lack of understanding, but I believe many are doing it as a power grab. After all, if our government remains small, then people like Bernie Sanders might actually need to get a job where he does something useful. Income inequality is a favorite refrain of people who espouse these philosophies. They say that income inequality is a terrible problem. They're wrong. You know what country has a very low level of income inequality? Venezuela. The inequality is low because everyone is equally poor. But in America, where the inequality is greater, there's generally a better quality of life, even for those in the lower economic classes. My family is decidedly middle class. We live in an 1800 square foot house in a really nice middle class neighborhood. We have two cars, a Nissan and a Toyota. As much as my husband wants a Tesla, it's just not in the cards right now. My kids never go hungry. They always have the clothing they need to wear that is weather appropriate. We have medical and dental and vision insurance. My kids have plenty of toys, and as a family, we are able to take fun family outings once in a while. Our home has air conditioning and heat. My husband and I have smartphones, and my kids have access to technology and internet. There are a lot of people in America that have a lot more money and nicer things than me. But my quality of life is still pretty amazing. In fact, compared to how other people have lived throughout history and in different places, we live like royalty. But then there are the celebrities, the CEOs who make millions, and disturbingly, the politicians. These people live on a completely different level. 7,000 square foot houses, private jets, $1,000 wardrobes, private villas in the most luxurious destinations around the world. They live a life I can barely ima even imagine. Does that mean that they have deliberately and directly hurt me because they live that way? No, it doesn't. 
My point is that focusing on equality of outcome is misguided. You can have two people who are living very well who have great inequalities in how they live. And yes, there are people who are homeless or living in more dire situations. And yes, we should help those people by helping them to find better jobs and in some cases through plain and direct charity. But this is just another area where our focus on equality of outcome is misguided. We need to be aware of the pitfalls of this philosophy because it is leading us as a nation in the very wrong direction. Focusing on the uniformity of outcomes is leading us towards socialism, and socialism does nothing but destroy. It does nothing but lead to widespread poverty and in many cases things that are far worse. History has shown us this over and over and over. But because of our cultural obsession with equity, we have blinded ourselves to so many realities. We as Americans have been so spoiled with our lives that we think it is impossible for our nation to descend into chaos, into widespread poverty or totalitarianism. But the people of Venezuela and Cuba thought the same things before things went badly. We are not immune from the consequences of making bad policy decisions. I believe America has made a grave mistake in giving power to avowed socialists in the last election. I only hope that we can change course before it is too late. All right, we are going to go to our three questions of the week. Question number one comes from John. Why do many Americans seem to value personal freedom, independence, liberty, and individualism so highly over injustice and poverty? There are so many different ways that I would like to answer this question. There's so many different things I want to say about it. Um, this question is actually, I, I reject the premise that this question is asked on. Okay, so he is pitting personal freedom, independence, liberty, and individualism against valuing justice and taking care of people who are in poverty. That is like saying, I like apples better than blue jeans. I mean, you're, you're really, it's a, it's a false premise to believe that personal freedom, independence, and liberty, somehow, if you believe in those values, if you believe in those things, and even individualism, that means that somehow you don't care about justice or poverty. That is one of those false pretenses that people throw out there in order to avoid actually talking about what these these things mean and what these arguments actually are. Personal freedom, independence, and liberty are values that lead to a great quality of life for the most amount of people. I don't think that you can have true justice or even talk about eliminating poverty if you do not have personal freedom, independence, and liberty. Okay, this is one of those things where, you know, you're talking about social justice instead of individual justice. Okay, how can you even have real justice without individualism? Okay, because real justice is about individual. It is about saying this is the law in the country. And if you break this law, no matter who you are, then this is the consequence for that law. This is the consequence for breaking that law. So what they are trying to spin it around is to say, oh, no, we need social justice, which means that who you are and what your life circumstances are actually should determine what your what your punishment is or if you should get a punishment. Like maybe, you know, you're, you grew up poor and, you know, in a broken family and you grew up in dire circumstances. So, you know, we really shouldn't throw you in jail if you stabbed somebody. I mean, that that is kind of the premise behind social justice is we really need to look at all these other factors instead of just saying, OK, what was the crime? 
and what was the punishment. And people will say, you know, oh, well, there are certain groups that are treated unfairly by the justice system, you know, that maybe black Americans, for example, due to discrimination, you know, they might receive harsher sentences than white Americans. If that's the case, then we need to fix that at its root. We need to say, okay, that can't be allowed anymore. We can't have different punishments for different races. The solution is not to say, okay, well, let's just switch it. And if you're white, then, you know, there's no excuse for your crime. But if you're black, you have an excuse for your crime. That's not justice. Okay, so, and then the other thing is like the whole comparing individualism or pitting individualism against when they talk about justice or combating poverty. What they're really doing when they do this is they're pitting individualism against the common good. They're pitting those two ideas against each other. And the problem with doing that, it sounds good, right? It sounds like saying, oh no, we need to all give up our individual rights so that we can all take care of each other. But the problem with doing that is that when you deny that an individual has basic inherent rights and that those basic inherent rights can be steamrolled over if you can make an excuse that it's for the common good, that is how we end up with situations like the French Revolution. That is how we end up with situations like the Bolshevik Revolution. That is how we end up in situations where if you as an individual are standing in the way of what the majority deems is the common good, we can take away your individual rights. We can murder you. We can take away your money. We can take away your home. We can take away your business or your ability to protect yourself. We can take all of that away from you in, in support of the common good. That is what that argument actually brings you to when you take it all the way through to its conclusion. Again, We need to study history in this country because all of these things have happened in history and we can see with our own eyes what happens when we say individualism is bad, collectivism is good. We can see what the actual result of that is, okay? And a lot of times it does go against what we seem to think like sounds pretty and what sounds wonderful, but the truth is that freedom, personal freedoms, independence, liberty, and individualism are the only ways that the majority of people can have justice and that the majority of people can have the opportunities to be lifted out of poverty. Okay. Question number two comes from Daniel. He says, since society at large balances freedom of the individual versus the outcome of the group, for example, murderers are deprived of their freedom to preserve the safety of the group. Why are not more policies examined to enhance the outcome of impoverished groups? So my answer to this question is show me the policy. Okay, like we need to talk about specific policies, okay? And the reason for that is because we need to actually delve into a specific policy to see if the policy is actually going to achieve what we want it to achieve and not just make us feel good, right? So the road to hell is paved with good intentions, okay? Like we can intend for a policy to do really good things, but if the reality of that policy is not to do really good things, then we it's not worth it. So when you talk about murder, When the reason that we put murderers in jail, there's two reasons why we put murderers in jail. We put murderers in jail because number one, it's the victim of the murderer deserves justice. The victim who has been deprived of their life deserves justice. And when we, if we do not believe or if we do not act on the fact that if you are a victim of a crime, that you are going to get some level of justice, if the people of a country feel like they are not seeing justice done, for wrongs and for for negative things, then you do have the seeds planted for revolutions. You know, you do have the seeds planted for civil unrest. I mean, you can see that any in any situation. I mean, all of the the protests that took place all summer long last year, those whether it was real or perceived, those were due to the fact that people felt like they were not seeing justice done. So 
the idea of justice being done and people seeing that, okay, if somebody commits an atrocious act like murder, there's going to be justice for that person. That's what keeps people from vigilantism and other things like that. The second reason why murderers are deprived of their freedom is to protect the safety of the society, right? And we can see that that works. So if you have some person who is a a, a vicious murderer and we now have them behind bars, they're not free to go murder other people, okay? So you're saving lives by doing that. So we can see the consequences of that decision. When you say, why are not more policies examined to enhance the outcome of impoverished groups, what exactly are we what exactly are we talking about? I mean, are we talking about universal basic income? Because universal basic income in the few places that it's been tried, uh, Finland comes to mind, had to be suspended because it's not sustainable. When we're talking about socialism, I just spent a half an hour going over all of the reasons why socialism doesn't actually work. When we're talking about, I mean, look at education, right? So those are policies that we have enacted in order to help impoverished groups. We say, hey, let's provide free education or, you know, collectivist paid education, taxpayer funded education, so that every American can send their kids to school. And yet, what do we see in the education system? We see a major discrepancy between the quality of schools in rich neighborhoods versus the quality of schools in poor neighborhoods. So you can't just say, well, we need more policies. Okay, no, we need to know what the policies specifically are and we need to examine them. We need to see if they've been tried in history and we need to see if they're actually going to achieve the outcomes that we want them to achieve. All right, last question comes from Janice. Janice says, where do we draw the line on socialist policies where the country has come together to better society as a group? For instance, the government controls infrastructure like roads, so wouldn't policy or control over things like healthcare or energy independence better everyone? Okay, so the first thing that comes to my mind just hearing this question, living in Southern California, is have you seen the roads? Have you driven on the roads in Southern California? I mean, isn't this a big topic of conversation that the United States has pretty crappy infrastructure? Uh, Let's think for a minute about anything that's controlled by the government. So, like, let's talk about the DMV, okay? I, is, does anybody think that the DMV is actually a really efficient and, and excellent place to go? I mean, we've talked a lot about schools. You know, we've talked a lot about um, the fact that, you know, in the public schools, like, the whole design behind public schools is socialism. You know, it's this idea that as a society, we all pay taxes. And so everybody gets to go to public schools no matter how rich or poor they are. But look at all of the people who instead of taking advantage of the public school system, choose private school or choose homeschool or choose alternate schooling because there's so many issues with the public school system. As I mentioned, the public school system is not fully funded. You know, I mean, when people talk about let's have the government control healthcare the way the government controls schools. So my daughter went to public school for three years and my and, and, and her school is a really nice school in a really, as I mentioned, nice middle class neighborhood. And every single school year, I mean, the parents were constantly receiving messages from the teachers asking for donated supplies. I mean, things like tissues, things like whiteboard markers, things like glue sticks. I mean, so they're, they're, they're constantly doing fundraisers. They're constantly doing all of these things to try and get more money because there's just never enough money to actually run the schools the way the schools should be run. And this is from a school that's in a pretty nice neighborhood that's getting pretty adequate funding um, because it's a really good school district. I mean, I can't, you know, you, you move into the inner city schools where the parents don't have the money. They don't have the extra money to buy all of those extra supplies to donate to their kids' schools. Um, and so the kids just do without. So when you talk about, oh, we want the government in control of healthcare, I mean, if that's what the schools look like, 
what is healthcare going to look like in control of the government? You know, people have this false assumption that if we institute socialist policies, then what that means is that the government's going to take over. We're going to just give the government more tax dollars, but then I'm just going to have access to everything I need. And the assumption is that the quality of what we are accessing is going to be what we demand and it's going to be what we expect. And that is another of the big lies of socialism. Okay. This is where it's like, okay, you go to the grocery store, right? And, you know, hey, you have to pay for your own groceries. You can't just go in the grocery store and take whatever you want to take because it's, you know, it's it, it's available for everybody and it's taxpayer funded. OK, but meanwhile, when you go to the grocery store, there's 50 different types of bread and there's, you know, 20 different varieties of apples and there's 10 different types of, you know, syrup for your pancakes. And if you are if if you institute socialist policies, if those grocery stores are now taken over by the government and you you know, they're taken over by the government, but you can go in there and get whatever you need for free. Do you really think there's going to be 50 different varieties of bread or 20 different varieties of apples? I mean, that's just not going to exist. And these people in this country who actually promote socialism, they know it's not going to exist. Okay, Bernie Sanders himself. I know I've been talking about him a lot this episode, but Bernie Sanders himself said, why do you need 20 different varieties of bread? Okay, And, and so they know that when you institute these policies, the quality of what we're getting is going to decrease rapidly. When you have the government take over healthcare or energy or any of these things, I mean, what you are going to have is you are going to have either one of two things. You're either going to have increased costs or you're going to have decrease in quality. I mean, that's just the way it is. All of the countries in the world who have universal healthcare pay higher tax rates than Americans. And I think that a lot of Americans are under this false assumption that we're not going to pay bigger tax rates or our tax rates are only going to go up a teeny tiny bit because the rich are going to be the ones who are going to pay much higher taxes in order to pay for my health care. And that's just simply not true. Go look up the tax rates in countries like Denmark and Sweden that have these, you know, a lot of these redistribution policies that have a lot of these big government policies. They pay you know, twice, three times, four times the amount uh, in taxes to the government that Americans pay. And so I think that Democrats have been very dishonest about what it actually is going to cost, what it's actually going to take in order to get everybody to, you know, have access to healthcare or to have access to some of these other things that they want everybody to have quote unquote free, which every time you hear free, you need to remember it's not free. It's taxpayer funded. So whenever they make all these big promises, like your tax, you have to pay for it somehow and it's going to come through the taxes. And so Americans are going to pay much higher taxes. And whenever we start to talk about that, they uh, get a little bit uncomfortable. Thank you for taking a moment out of your day to talk about how our obsession with equity is leading us to embrace misguided socialist policies. I will be back next week with another deep dive into issues affecting American life from the perspective of just an American. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and give it a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps each and every week. Also, please share this episode with a family member or a friend so we can help spread the word. You can follow me on Twitter at JJNAmerican. You can also message the show by sending an email to JJ at I'mJustAnAmerican.com or visiting our Locals page at I'mJustAnAmerican.Locals.com. You can also follow the show on Instagram at I'm Just an American. This episode was produced and edited by Brian White. Music for this episode was written and performed by Michael Beatty.